Jacqueline and I are back with season two of the We Earn Media Show, and we've really missed doing this. Before we kick things off with episode one, we sincerely wanted to thank all of our listeners. Putting together the show has really made us fall in love all over again with our jobs, and not only are we both completely honored to have had some incredible conversations with our guest and learned a lot of new things along the way at that, but we've also received so much love from our listeners. Really, one of our favorite things about this whole thing is having the opportunity to meet new people in our field and just honestly shoot the shit about our jobs. It's really fun. And speaking of, we've had a few requests from listeners to have more guests on the show who aren't necessarily reporters and journalists, but are leaders in the industry who are out there testing new strategies and can give some new fresh ideas that will help us think more creatively and ultimately be inspired to do better work. So we have quite the lineup for you all for season two. And we're really kicking it off with a bang for episode one, if I do say so myself. In today's episode, Jacqueline and I are chatting with Rand Fishkin. Rand is the founder of Spark Toro and previously the co-founder of Moz. And he has dedicated his entire professional life to helping people do better marketing through his blogging, videos, you might have seen his Whiteboard Fridays, which he's really well known for, through his speaking and his book, Lost and Founder. Rand, welcome to the show. Okay, so we're going to dive right in because Jacqueline and I cannot wait to have this conversation with you. Um, Seriously, it's one that we've been anticipating for weeks now because we know it's such an important one. Oh, well, Britt, it is my honor to be here. Thank you uh, to both of you for, for having me. Thanks. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you so much for making time for us. Today, we're going to focus on a little roadblock that PR pros and content marketers have to tackle constantly, and it's something that you've dubbed as the Wall Street Journal marketing problem. Now, for our listeners who haven't read your post on the SparkToro blog, which of course we'll link to in the show notes, can you give us a summary of what the Wall Street marketing, um, sorry, Wall Street Journal marketing problem is, and also tell us why you were so inspired to write about it? Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. So I, I think this is something where if you are a marketing professional of any kind, never, never mind uh, PR, I think you will resonate with, with this experience. And I've, I've had this experience many times. Almost all of the agencies, consultants, in-house marketers that I've talked to have had something like this, which is essentially this. You, you walk into a boardroom or a meeting room. Um, maybe you're making a pitch. Maybe you're trying to get some budget approved for something. Maybe you're trying to you know, set up your marketing plan for the year. And, uh, and you say, okay, well, we know that our target audience is uh, interior designers and interior decorators, and they tend to have these characteristics. And here's sort of our, you know, whatever, our personas, here's our, here's our customer data, et cetera, et cetera. So we, we want to try and reach more of these people uh, online and off with our marketing messages. And the, uh, the CEO, invariably it's the CEO or the CMO or VP marketing, some executive person goes, I want you to get us in the Wall Street Journal. I don't know why he sounds like a <laughs> I've heard that with reporter that from voice. the 1920s. But <laughs> <laughs> now I'll see you here. Where are you going to get in the Wall Street Journal? Eh? Uh, but but basically, <laughs> right there, uh, they're essentially saying, I want you to get us in the Wall Street Journal. And that could be, I want to place an ad there, or I want to uh, get us a story there. I want us to, I want to get us written about. And, and their logic is always the same, right? It's, look, I spend a lot of time with our customers. I talk to a lot of people, you know, important and influential people. And like me, these important and influential people read the Wall Street Journal. So I want you to get us in this place that is the Wall Street Journal. Now, the Wall Street Journal could be a stand-in for any, what I'd call prestige publication. Uh, it could be the New York Times. It could be The Economist. It could be something that doesn't actually do a great job of reaching your audience or is an incredible pain in the butt or charges a boatload of money for other ads. But because they're a prestige pu- publication, they sort of they know that executives, uh, wealthy people, powerful people will be biased to want to see their names, their companies written about in these publications. That's what I call the Wall Street Journal problem. I want to dive into um, many aspects of 
this problem too because hold on sorry i'm trying to uh form my thoughts here i also have i'm gonna not include this but i hope you guys can hear <laughs> um i just randomly adopted this bearded dragon rand oh. you don't know about this and daryl. sorry i mean his name is daryl <laughs> yes and he's shedding for the first time and he keeps moving oh. around his cage you should and- leave this in Britt. this is actually kind of interesting and people want- i want to see <laughs> pictures uh, okay, I'll send you a picture for sure. A, I don't a, think you a bearded want one dragon right is like a it's like a iguana type of lizard, right? Oh yeah, yeah. It's um, Australian actually. I've learned, and <laughs> that's their natural habitat. And he is shedding, and yeah, it's he seems super uncomfortable, and you might be hearing like scratching noises in the background. It is not me on my desk. <laughs> I think I will be getting Daryl out of the office. I, I would month. be really excited to hear a podcast where someone says, I promise that's not me. It's um it's my bearded dragon shedding behind <laughs> me. Disgusting. Yeah, yeah, that's it. I just watched him like kick a flake of skin off. <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay. That's adorable. <laughs> <laughs> It kind of is, but I was wondering why he's being so cranky. Anyways. I had to. I just googled uh, pictures of bearded dragons shedding, and oh. looks awesome. Yeah, his skin underneath it is now really like yellow. It's he's a beautiful wow. yellow color. So, yeah. Anyways, um, <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> so yes. The so the Wall Street Journal marketing problem. Right. My my concern with it is not just that. Um, that it, that this bias exists, but that a lot of times when when that executive, right, when that VP of marketing, when the CMO and the CEO says this in the room, a lot of times agencies, consultants, in-house marketers, PRs, we don't always have a great response, mm-hmm. right? It, it's tough for us to say, well, you know, we have this survey data suggesting that uh, our audience of interior designers actually reads these other publications and follows these other types of accounts and watches these YouTube channels and you know goes to these podcasts and whatever, right? Like here's their media consumption behavior. It does not include the prestige publication that you're after. It certainly doesn't include the Wall Street Journal. I don't think we're going to move the needle on reaching the customers we want to reach with it. And you know, two two things are true here, right? One is the executive might actually believe that their customers are reachable through the Wall Street Journal because they're interfacing with primarily people of their status, ilk, level, et cetera. And some of those are indeed customers and they share media consumption habits. And so maybe there is some overlap with sort of the executive level of, of your customers. But the second thing that's often true is that the executive just wants to see their name or their company name in there. And I I have had this same desire myself. Like, Britt and Jackie, I don't know if you've had this, but my my grandparents who are in their 90s um, and, and live in a care facility here in, here in Seattle now, um, my grandmother is not impressed by anybody writing about me or my company unless it's the New York Times and maybe the Wall Street Journal. Mm-hmm. The yeah. Washington Post, she's like, oh, the Washington Post, no, I don't trust them. <laughs> right? Like, they were unreliable in whatever, the 1950s when she was reading them. And so she doesn't like the Washington Post, regardless of the good journalism they've done for 70 years. Right? She likes the New York Times. So mm-hmm. I-, I get it. Like, I want to be in the New York Times, not because it's going to move the needle on SparkToro's customers, but because I can send the article clipping to my grandmother. Yeah, yeah. A lot of, many times, especially now that I started my own consultancy, all of my clients actually have come to me and said, ideally, we want to be featured in the New York Times. And of course, I say, yes, ideally, I want to get you featured in those publications, but we need to have a whole, or, you know, leave it to me to create the sole promotional plan that entails the niche outlets that you're true audiences are actually reading and engaging with and also those like we want to diverse we want to make it diverse we want to make sure that we're working on your general brand awareness but also tapping into those sub communities who are actually going to become brand advocates and really need and want to know about your brand and buy your product or you know support your cause agreed and i don't yeah i I don't know why but it is often really difficult to convince folks, especially without strong data, 
that some niche publication is just as important or more important or just as worthy of your effort as some publication they've heard of. That brand bias is so strong. Mm-hmm. Right. So when you're trying to make the case for going after these smaller, more niche publications, what kind of data can somebody present to their client in order to back up their case? Uh, so I, I've seen sort of three things work well. Um, one of those is survey data, right? And I think that's classic market research. So a lot of a lot of companies, especially larger ones, engage in classic market research, and they'll they'll ask people, you know, um, what do you read? What do you follow? What do you watch? Etc. Uh, you can also have some of that market research in post-consumer surveys. So I'm sure you've had this experience maybe a few times where you go to um, a lot of niche e-commerce websites do this, where you, you know, after you check out, they ask, how did you find us? How did you hear about us? Mm-hmm. How did you learn about us? Some B2B um, software companies do that too. So that data can, can be somewhat helpful. Uh, the second one that I've seen work well is referral data. So, you know, if you if you show, hey, we were we were mentioned by this publication a year ago. They sent us whatever, 600 visits. Those 600 visits had a 4% conversion rate to our email list and a 1% conversion to paid customers and of the email list, you know, another 20% converted over the next 12 months. Getting in this publication really moved the needle on the bottom line. That that type of data helps a ton too. And then the third kind is something um, that that SparkToro helps with specifically. So, but I I, I don't want to be overly promotional of SparkToro. In, in fact, what came first was us seeing uh, my co-founder Casey and I seeing how people were getting this data, and that's what inspired us to make SparkToro. So, this is a couple of years ago. Yeah. I was looking at um, some of the market research, really creative, uh, very smart market research that some big companies and um, agencies were doing. And essentially what they did is they had their engineering teams build crawlers to go crawl social networks, social um, profiles of their customers. So they would take their customer database, right? A big list of emails of people who'd bought from them. They'd plug it into something like Clearbit or Full Contact. And, you know, if you give those companies emails, they'll give you back social URLs. Here, here's the Twitter profile. Here's their LinkedIn. Here's their Facebook. Here's their YouTube, here's their whatever, right? Instagram, et cetera. Uh, And then they would crawl those profiles and extract out all the data that they could about those public social profiles and aggregate them and then say, hey, look, you know, whatever, 22% of our, uh, of customers who bought from us follow this niche publication or engage with it or, you know, have some connection to it on social media. We should go do some targeting there. And when Casey and I saw that, we were like, oh, that is genius. <laughs> My God, that's genius. And also, are you kidding me? You had to have an engineering team go build a crawler yourselves to extract this data. And you're doing it like, you know, four profiles a day for, you know, a hundred days to try and get, get, get past the limitations and yada, yada. And then you have to build the database and then you have to build all the code to uh, extract it. Just ludicrous, right? That, that is a ludicrous project yeah, for, a, for a company to have to build. <laughs> So Casey and I basically had the idea, like, we should just build that for the whole internet, and then anyone can just search and get data on their customers. Um, and so that's what SparkToro is. Hence, I wrote about this Wall Street Journal marketing problem a few weeks ago, because it's one of the big challenges that that we wanted to help people solve. I love that. Okay. So I know there's you've mentioned some data or metrics that you can use to sell the value of working with these kind of publications. I think there's a lot more we can talk about there, but say you don't, say you're a a PR professional or a marketer and you are still trying to sell the value to your client without having worked with that outlet or that influencer, what have you before, what's your vetting process like to determine whether or not it's one that you want to include in your promotional plan? Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. So I, I think this is an area, honestly, where the two of you have much more uh, experience and good answers than I do. For for me personally, when I do this, uh, I am breadth first. So I, I take an approach that is much more um, broad. And I don't generally, with a few exceptions, I don't generally concern myself too much with being promoted on... Um, 
whatever outlets where I am worried about my brand presence being there. Right. Mm -hmm. But I don't really worry about the, you know, oh, I don't want my brand associated with their brand. I think in B2B software, that's generally much less of a concern than it is in like consumer products, um, especially certain types of consumer products that are trying to maintain a particular brand presence. I I will say I am also very serendipitous in my approach. So a lot of people reach out to me and say, hey, it's my, I'm starting up a new podcast and I wondered if you would be one of my first guests. And, you know, they, they think that I have some, you know, um, whatever big vetting process and I'm probably going to say no. I say yes to, to a lot of those. Just because I like helping people get started. I like small publications. Um, I like supporting new efforts, right? I'm I'm a huge underdog supporter generally. And so I I love doing that stuff. Uh, But I I get that that is not true for a lot of marketers, a lot of executives. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. I've had clients that kind of push back on even bothering with the little guys. but But I don't. So, so here's, here's, here's my, like my pitch to executives who would push back against the little guys is little guys get big, right? Like, and, and also if you have an extraordinary conversation, you get to use your channels to amplify that, right? You get to use your brand to to amplify this great interview you had with someone who's, you know, listener base is six subscribers. It's fine. And when that, when those um, publications uh, write about you, it, it does help you in other ways, right? It is a link. Um, so for, for those folks who care about SEO, who care about, um, uh, uh, brand lift in Google, who care about ranking signals, uh, it, it helps you there. And over time, you know, if you get a lot of those little ones that can be uh, a diversity of signals that has a much bigger impact than, you know, one link from one big outlet. The link thing is like a no-brainer, and this might help some struggling PRs. If you're working on a campaign, especially a survey or study, and you're having trouble placing it in a top-tier outlet and you're feeling a little frustrated, don't be afraid to go niche because oftentimes I've found a lot more luck reaching out to these mid-sized publishers. Um, And you can even bake this into your brainstorming sessions where when you come up with an idea, come up with something that maybe a more niche or maybe your target audience would be interested in, reach out to those mid-sized blogs and you'd be surprised. And uh, (laughs) if you're trying to inflate like your performance and inflate your performance sounds horrible, but as a freelancer, when I'm giving a report to my client, I want it to look full. Like I want them to see that I got them multiple placements. Um, a lot of times reaching out to those mid-sized blogs is a great way to do that. Cause you know, quite honestly, like if you get really good and you have a strong relationship with CNBC, that's fantastic. But like what you're going to get on CNBC every month, like it kind of gets a little stale. I mean, you know, yeah, they can work as like fillers to help you keep your business in the news consistently for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, another thing that this is great for is reputation management. Yeah. So, you know, if you, if you have a lot of publications that have written about you and someone searches for your brand, what you want to present is your best face forward. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and one of the great ways to do that is to have a lot of publications that have written about you it doesn't matter whether the podcast you were on was listened to by only 50 people instead of 500 or 5,000. If that podcast is ranking on page one or two and helping you present uh, exactly the message that you want to the audience that's looking for you. Exactly. Uh, And you can, you can use that sort of um, it's in, in the SEO world, they call it barnacle SEO, right? You latch on to a strong, powerful ship, right? And a lot of those, a lot of those smaller, publications, right? A smaller YouTube channel or a smaller podcast or a smaller interview series, a small blog will sit on the domain of a powerful website, a website that can rank very well. And so I do think about it from that perspective as well. Um, And those relationships you build with those hosts, right? If um, If you went on a podcast early and you helped someone out uh, building their brand, for the next five years, you can drop them an email and ask for a favor and get it. Absolutely. I totally the, the agree networking, with that. Yeah, the networking is so powerful. And personal relationships, you know, someone, um, 
I, I was asked to write about outreach and um, uh, pitch tips, right? And and my biggest my biggest outreach and pitch tip is have a relationship. It is undefeatable. You 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 cannot beat knowing a person, having a real connection with that person, and and reaching out a warm, not even a warm intro, but a warm relationship versus a cold one that the difference is a hundred X. So be willing to invest a little bit more in, uh, in that network building. I think that can, that can be huge. Yeah. You never know where they're going to end up. People yeah. bounce around from outlet to outlet all the time. They might one day be writing for one of those top tier publications. I've seen it from time to time. So yeah. Um, one of my favorite tips, or I guess tactics for getting clients to test out one of these smaller publications or influencers is when I have a very technical in the weeds kind of story to tell on behalf of my client, um, a publication or let's just say a podcast host will have deep knowledge on that subject and you can cut right to the meat of the story, which then leads to a more in-depth feature piece. Yeah. What I'm trying to say is when you have these conversations with these podcast hosts who have in-depth knowledge on that topic, it's going to be much more higher quality and it's going to speak more to the customers maybe that you want to attract that, you know, are going to buy your product or latch onto your brand. And that's my that's how I get my clients to test out this kind of a strategy. Because nine times out of ten, they're really happy with the content and the way it turns out. Britt, I was gonna I was gonna ask, uh, do you do you ever have that that challenge? I, I I experience this all the time where when someone writes about a field that I know well, right, so, something that I know a lot about, uh, in a mainstream publication, nine times out of ten, the quality. Even even when the quality of the writing is great and the quality of the interviewing and the, the people they've talked to is great, the the thread is lost, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, for example, I, I've um, written and talked and and thought a ton and done a bunch of research around um, Google's sort of abuse of monopoly power. And whenever I see uh, whoever it is, right, any mainstream publication from the New York Times, the Washington Post to um, you know, whatever the verge or tech crunch, anybody write about it. I kind of go, Oh, you, you were so close. You were almost there. You almost picked up what the, what the real thread and the underlying problem is, but you didn't quite get there. And when you find, when you find those, um, you know, those true deep niche experts, uh, who write about this stuff, you can get, you can get the story that right. uh, the real story, right? That that high quality, in depth, follows the thread through to its conclusion mm-hmm. successfully, uh, and I think that those are often those are often the stories that you really want to amplify as as a brand, as an individual, um, more so than kind of the I don't know what what to call exactly the kind of journalism that many big publications practice. It's almost like even when it's not political, it has that like both sides. Let me not pick up a narrative, right? Um, and that, to me at least, that that feels like it's missing something. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. Um, I've also noticed too that with those smaller publications, let's just say they're may, way more likely. Their audiences are way more likely to click through to that piece and go yes. to my client's site and read into it some more because we're targeting the right audience, right? They're more yeah, like yeah. they care about that thing. About it. Yeah. They yep. care about that thing. You're not just a headline in like a news feed. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and so this is right. This is why I think it's so important, you know, that, and so valuable that you can, you can say to someone, Hey, if, if we are trying to reach whatever, um, people whose whose profile right their bio or their job title includes the words public relations should we be in the wall street journal or should we try and get uh in edelman mm-hmm. and yeah one is one reaches like two percent of that audience and run reaches 12 percent of that audience so right. let's let's go <laughs> let's go for the 12 percent, right and i think that it's just that number that's so important this is this is kind of the you know, at the core of the solution to the Wall Street Journal problem is tell me the percent of the audience that I want to reach who engages with this publication. Right. 
Well, I think that covers a lot of the value behind why we should be paying more attention to, quote unquote, the little guys. <laughs> I do want to make sure we spend some time talking about how marketers can have these hard conversations with their clients, um, mainly about the downside of focusing on earning a placement on high prestige sources like the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. And that can be really daunting, right? So how maybe can you talk about some advice on the best way to approach these conversations? Yeah, I mean, I think... I think I think a lot of times the the conversation has to be a really open and honest one, and right. um, and that and that means honestly recognizing the real reason that someone might want to be in a high prestige publication, right? So so if if you go in to one of these meetings, no, no matter what role you're playing, right? If you if you're um, the in-house marketer, if you're the PR, if you're the agency, your consultant, whatever role you're filling, uh, I, I think it pays to go in and say, hey, I I totally understand why we would want to get in high prestige publications, right? So these high prestige publications that don't reach uh, a big portion of our um, actual target audience and our customers can still be valuable for these reasons, Right? And then we, we, we talk about them, right? So a prestige publication, you know, brings with it this sort of brand weight. Um, it, it can be impressive to potential uh, partners. It's, it's useful for reaching sort of other um, executives or high status individuals. Uh, it, it can rank very well for our name if it's a positive piece, these kinds of things. And now here's the drawbacks, right? The drawbacks are it might not move the needle on any of our marketing or sales efforts, uh, unlikely to convert, the the engagement ratio is lower, uh, the chances of getting successfully in there are much lower, the amount of effort it's going to take to get in there is much higher, it's more expensive, right? All, all these sorts of drawbacks. But if you if you position those and then you say, okay, now tell me, you tell me, client or team or executives, you tell me, how much effort would you like us to devote to sort of the, you know, these five prestige publications versus the 500 to 1,000 uh, niche publications that we know reaches your audience and it potentially has, you know, higher ROI, it's lower effort to get in, we have a higher likelihood of, of actually getting featured, all these kinds of things. Where, where do you want to split the effort? You want to go 80-20? You want to go 50-50? You tell us, we'll do it. And, and I think when you when you have the conversation that way, in that open and honest way, especially if you, you know, if you can lead with a story, um, I found this super useful, right? For for sort of end arounding the problem. So you, you know, early on in the meeting, you say, "Hey, we've talked to a lot of clients um, who don't have the savvy and sophistication that you here have, right? That you on this team have." So now you're now you're, you know, flattering them, but I, I, usually in a fair way, which is they want to be in high prestige publications and they can't quite explain why. And it is mostly because of, you know, brand and, and you know, they want to be able to show their grandmothers. I want to be able to show my grandmother when I get a placement in, the, in these publications, right? And so then you, you almost take the wind out of the sails of um, those less than fully logical or thought through arguments. And I think those stories can, can help, um, but you have to be upfront about it. And, and sometimes that can be... <laughs> Yes. A little daunting, but it's not impossible. Yeah, I definitely um, have felt like, especially earlier on in my career, finding the right way to say, yes, I want to get you in the New York Times, but what about meetingsnet.com? <laughs> yeah. Like finding the courage to have those kinds of conversations with my clients was so hard, but it gets easier and you're so right. You just have to be honest and use examples. Maybe not, you know, say who you were working with because a lot of us are under right. NDA, but use examples of the type of client that you were working with. Tell them the story about how they wanted to be featured in the New York Times as well. We tried that and that was our ultimate goal. But yeah, um, but we also discovered all of these other communities that had highly engaged audiences that we shouldn't overlook. And I convinced them to have some faith. We move forward with it. And this is the result. And yeah. then you'll hopefully start to get that buy-in. And even if you just test it out with maybe a few hours each month, 
that could be another way to um, start to show the value there as well. Yeah. I, I also think, you know, I think as a practitioner, it is so much more rewarding to have, you know, successful placement in 50 sources, 10 sources that send high quality traffic that actually move the needle on the business versus, you know, months and months of work to try and eke out a mention in a prestige publication that really doesn't do anything. Right. Right. So those those prestige publications, they don't like to link, right? And so they, they're very unlikely to send direct traffic. The prestige publications tend to be broader in terms of their journalistic audience. And so uh, the chances that you're going to reach exactly the target customer that you want to reach are very low. Yeah. So, you know, I think you just got to, um, and, and very frankly, those, you know, journalism world is very, very insular. Um, I'm trying to remember, I saw it on, I think I saw it on Hacker News the other day. There was a great piece that looked at uh, what has happened in the worlds of journalism online over the last uh, 18 months. And essentially it was saying that, that uh, journalists on uh, on Twitter, on LinkedIn, on these other social networks are uh, less likely than ever to be part of broader communities and they very much follow each other. Yes. Oh, yeah. Right. And so you can see that demonstrated in the personal finance ministry. Oh, sure. Right. And so getting yeah. into 10 smaller niche publications in personal finance is the way to get recognized by whatever, you know, Kipling or Forbes or Fortune or. Yeah, the, the big names. I had that written down as a benefit and I forgot to mention it. You're so right. I've seen it happen. These smaller outlets and influencers cover one story and right. then the bigger publics or publications pick it up. Yeah, because that, that's how they find own. stories, right? Yeah. Journalists pay attention to other uh, sources of influence in their sphere, right? More niche ones. And then that's how stories get fed up. So if you yep. want to be in the style pages of the New York Times, first get into, you know, these niche fashion publications, these small blogs that are covering, you know, whatever character on TV show wore last week. And our local publications. And that's why it's even more important to invest in your local newspaper right now. <laughs> oh my God. Rest so worried about local rest. journalism in the U.S. Yeah. I know. Me too. It's bad. But um, I have seen that happen there as well. Local, A local reporter will tell a fantastic news story about something that's happening in their community, and mm -hmm. then it'll get picked up by the Huffington Post. Yeah, yeah. We saw that with the, um, what was it, the the Chop Chaz, you know, oh, that, that protest yeah. zone in Capitol Hill, um, which, I, Britt, I don't know. I can't remember if you ever came by our old apartment, um, but- that's where Geraldine and I lived in in Seattle. Was like oh, right yeah. right on Kell Anderson Park. There we we moved oh, two wow. years ago. But um, the uh, there was there were some really good like local niche blogs in the Seattle area that were writing about what was going on there and sort of how you know how the chop had like a little bit more than a little bit lost the thread of the Black Lives Matter movement at one mm -hmm. point. Um, I think just a few days in, it was kind of you know like the Black Lives Matter folks in Seattle said. Uh, this this zone does not represent us, and we're not really involved in it anymore. Mm -hmm. um, and at that point, my support for it declined. Right? I was <laughs> like, "Well, if it's no longer about BLM, like, why are why is it happening then?" But mm -hmm. um, the uh, the the New York Times wrote a big piece about it and referenced several of those niche publications. Mm -hmm. And I I didn't like the New York Times's headline. I thought they made it seem very, I don't know, anarchist and chaotic. And um, mm -hmm. and I don't think it had particularly higher crime rates than that area normally does on weekends. But <laughs> um, regardless, regardless of the New York Times piece, right? Like that, that is how that piece got featured was these small blogs, like tiny blogs read by literally probably hundreds of people in the Seattle area. And then, you know, picked up by this major prestige publication. Yeah. Yep. That's a very good recent example. <laughs> um, yeah, I think I forget his full name, but I Converge Media is one of them, and the reporter who's been reporting on behalf of them, he's been um, even in a bunch of podcast interviews, like Vox's, I believe, um, today explained 
I think he was a guest on that show. And of course, our local um, Seattle Now, I believe it's called podcast. Oh, yeah. I listen to way too many. I don't That's ask awesome. me to repeat anything that I listen to either because it's usually mumbled in a bunch of other facts that I've heard <laughs> that day and stories that I've heard that day. But yeah, you're so right. That's a really good recent example of how of how local journalism um, and the stories that come from that can get picked up by the bigger guys, sometimes translated not as accurately as your local newspaper might report on it. But um, yeah, it's a very good example. I've seen it happen a lot in the music industry as well. Like the, you know, music blogs, a lot of your diehard music fans aren't going to go to maybe, I don't even know if the Huffington Post, yeah, I think they have like an entertainment section, but it's probably all like celebrity news, right? Um, they're not they're not reading that section. They're reading, you know, your music industry blogs, like Consequence of Sound, as an example, and getting their stories and their information from there. But I have seen Huffington Post Entertainment pick up their stories from that particular blog. Mm. So I, I used example. to call it the domino effect yeah. where, you know, you might get a placement on a small blog, but if you wait a little bit, there is a high chance that it might be picked up by a larger publication and you didn't necessarily have to do that. You didn't have to send that pitch. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one of the, one of the smartest tactics I've seen. So this was, um, uh, I, I sort of came, uh, came across it because I was used as part of the process and I, I kind of appreciated being used. It was fun, uh, to participate, but like, you know, some big, some big brands in technology uh, essentially had their media teams reach out to me and ask if I would uh, surface their stories to reporters who had previously quoted me. Um, and I thought that tactic was just genius. And it worked out It worked out actually really well. So I basically, it, I, I won't name the company because I think they asked that I not talk about exactly how it came about, but mm-hmm. essentially, you know, they were like, Hey, we saw Rand that you got quoted on this story. It was in relation to Google stuff. Right. But, um, we saw that you got quoted in this, in this story. Uh, we think that we've got this really interesting narrative that happened to us as well. Would you be willing to reach out to this reporter who talked to you and oh. like make them aware of, you know, this, this other story up fr- coming from us? And I, I was like, yeah, that, that story sounds fascinating and terrifying, right? It was, you know, some nasty thing that Google had done to this company. And I reached out to the reporter and sure enough, there was, you know, there was a big feature like a month later. Wow. That's really smart. Did you have a relationship with the people that asked you to pitch it basically? Um, gosh, I, maybe barely. Okay. <laughs> uh, I think I think it was less I had a relationship with like maybe they had tweeted at me a few times. Okay. Yeah. You know, okay. So like I recognized their name but right. not I didn't have a a personal you know, I don't one. I don't know maybe I met them at a conference or something but yeah. I, I don't I didn't recall them well. I didn't have a close relationship certainly. Um but I thought it was a genius tactic to just go, "Oh, mm-hmm. let's we want to get in this publication. We want this reporter to write about us or the, this this journalist." Let's see if we can find people in our network who are connected to that journalist because that journalist has cited them before. We know that those folks care about this problem. We are also experiencing this problem. Like, let's go get amplified that way. I thought that was, uh, yeah, very, very creative strategy. Crafty. Yeah. Very crafty. I like it. That's a strategy that I've not tried yet. And now my mind is churning. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I love it. I, I mean, I don't, I don't say this to be promotional, but like one of the things that I do that I uh, use personally in SparkToro, like when I'm trying to reach, in particular, I'm trying to reach like the market research segment because I, um, I have like this background in SEO. So lots of people in SEO know who I am and, and have followed SparkToro, but I want to reach people in market research niche. And um, one of the things that I love being able to do is plug a publication in and then see characteristics of their audience and see what else their audience follows because that can it can do the domino effect thing right mm-hmm. so i you know i might say like oh i really you know it'd be super cool if um Cision would uh which you know obviously is a is a pr mm-hmm. uh software company and and database um it would be really cool if they would write about or talk about or have me on the podcast to talk about uh, SparkToro because I, you know, I don't think we compete with them, but we have like mm-hmm. some overlap there. That would be really cool. And so I can see, oh, 
okay, you know, of the whatever, uh, 27,914 people who follow Cision, uh, they listen to um, the Behind the Numbers eMarketer podcast, you know, 16% of them do. Okay, I know somebody at Behind the Numbers. I think I could get in there. Like, let me mm-hmm. let me see if I can get some dominoes to start falling here. Yeah. Um, and that, yeah, that that tactic um, is, I think, genius. The other the other place you can do that for free too. Um, uh, you know, the tool Similar Web. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if you if you plug in any uh, website into Similar Web and you sort of scroll down on the free data that they give you, they will give you. It's not a full list, but it's like somewhere between five and ten. Uh, websites that people who visit that website also follow, uh, also visit, right? Yeah, I love that feature. Yeah. That's a really cool feature. So, so great, right? Because you you could basically you know you could mm-hmm. say like, hey, we want to get whatever we want to get our you know our band featured in Variety. Well, what else do people who visit Variety magazine online like? What what else do they follow? And mm-hmm. um, you know, sources like SimilarWeb or SparkToro or. Um, you could you could go to uh, data providers like Disco or Verto Analytics or something like that, right? But you you get those real numbers. It's kind of great. One of the best feelings is finding a new publication too that I've never heard of and that mm-hmm. has a, an engaged audience and a strong domain authority. I'm just like, oh my gosh, oh, <laughs> it <yeah>. makes my day. <laughs> The related feature, I think it's related. There's a Google shortcut where you can do like related colon and then type in a website. And sometimes, not yeah. always, but it'll pop up similar websites. And that's a great way to find, you know, how, I don't know. Is it similar to similar web? Is it like I kind of based on I don't data? know how Google does it. And I'm not sure why, but it feels like today it works one out of 10 times. And years ago, it used right. to work it's like nine website. out of 10 times. So, <laughs> exactly. I've noticed yeah, that. Yeah, I'm not... I don't love Google's methodology because I don't know how they're doing it and they don't tell you how they're doing it. And so, yeah, go figure. Yeah, that that um, that obscurity <laughs> makes me question the, you know, is this people who searched for this also searched for that? Is it people who visited also visited? Is this coming from Chrome data? Is it coming from, you know, Google search data? I, I don't know. Is it coming from rankings data? I don't know. <laughs> so I I like folks who are transparent with their methodology, right? So similar web. I know it's coming from clickstream data. I know they have about ten million devices in the U.S. I know that, you know, blah, 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 blah. So I, I, I like that stuff. Um, there's good panel data too from, I mentioned um, Disco, D-I-S-Q-O.com. So they've got a, I think so, somewhere around 100,000 panelists, basically people they, they pay to be part of their panel here in the US and they have all their devices, you know, set up with Disco. And so they try to be representative of the broader U.S. internet using population, and you can get some pretty pretty cool data from them, um, assuming your brand is is big enough uh, or your niche is big enough. That's pretty cool. So we've got SparkToro, Disco, SimilarWeb. Do you have any other recommendations? Uh, there's a there's a Finnish company um, called Verto Analytics that has a, a pretty sizable U.S. panel, and then they've got panels in other countries as well. Uh, I Very like cool. I like them too. Uh, Comscore used to be good, but um, I think I think Comscore um, kind of like sh- they shut down a lot of their stuff uh, right around the same time that Jumpshot did at the beginning of this year. So that that data has gone missing in some ways. Uh, um, if you're looking for you know specific uh, content that's been shared, I I mean everybody's a fan of it, but in in marketing world, but Buzzsumo is quite mm-hmm. good for that. Right. So, Love Buzzsumo. Yeah, a lot of folks yeah. are big fans of Buzz, Buzzsumo. I, I like it too. I think it's great. They were bought by Brandwatch, and uh, but they, they've done a good job of maintaining that product. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think of any you others. Know, you're giving me an idea, and leave this in the podcast, Britt, so the audience oh, yeah? knows what I'm thinking about. When we release season two, in addition to putting links to all these resources that we're mentioning in the article, um, I mean, in the podcast episode, uh, we will have a resource page on our actual website and we'll start aggregating a lot of these useful tools for PRs because yeah, we need mm-hmm. it. Um, you know, I don't want to knock the quote unquote PR field, whatever you want to call it. I call it earned media because mm-hmm. I think obviously marketers earn media too. It's not just 
reserved for people who call themselves public relations professionals. Yeah. Um, but it, it's easy to get in a rut. And um, it's always good to be on the pulse with what kind of tools are out there and, you know, trying different things, especially if you're trying to make a case. I mean, Rand, you mentioned it. Data, like presenting data is, I would think, a pretty foolproof way to communicate and convince your client or your boss that niche is the way to go. Yeah. You know? So, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. I think, I yeah. think those numbers, they just make a huge difference, right? Because huge. especially, especially when you, um, when you can explain the, the source behind them, right? So if, if you can say, Hey, this is clickstream data, uh, here's how it's gathered, right? It's essentially the software that's installed on people's machines and, uh, they opt into it and, you know, the, the, you know, whatever Virto analytics has this panel size, here's what their data says about who visits what, or SparkToro, they have, you know, these 75 million public social and web profiles that they uh, crawl and gather data from. Of those, they had whatever, 29,000 who talked about X in the last four months. And of those 29,000, here's how many visited this website or engaged with this podcast or whatever, right? And, and when you bring uh, data like that, especially when you can explain how it was gathered, I think it... it it gets over a lot of the gaps um, between making a a decision based on gut instinct and making one based on uh, hard information. And, and a lot of times, yeah. frankly, in, in earned media, we don't have as much hard information as you might have in advertising, for example, where you, especially online advertising, where every single click is tracked perfectly, well, nearly. Um, I think that, you know, that uh, bringing that sort of resource to bear is powerful. Most definitely. I think that's a really good idea, Jackie. I think, honestly, we've covered everything that I thought we should. Is there anything else that, Rand, that you wanted to make sure we discussed regarding either the Wall Street Journal marketing problem or even like any cool new announcements for Spark Toro that you wanted to share with our listeners. Oh, yeah. uh, you might have been you saw on Twitter. I was uh, I was sharing that video yesterday. Yeah. So so one of the things um, the you know the, the the big update that we have coming to Spark Toro is uh, we did a partnership with a company called Hunter.io, which basically crawls the web and extracts email addresses. And so our uh, one of our big asks from a lot of folks is, hey, when you show me a source that reaches my audience, could I could I just like get the contact information for that source? And mm -hmm. the answer up until now has been, well, you know, we show you their like social accounts so you can go check those out. N now we're going to have an actual, you know, contact information yes. uh, through Hunter.io. And That's if awesome. you add stuff to your list and export it, all that contact information will be in in, in the CSV. So for folks who like to do um, just kind of all their prospecting and then their outreach directly without having to go through the process of like, hey, who do I know here? Is there an email address somewhere? Where can I find that? That that will be um, a much smoother process in SparkToro and uh, probably I'm guessing somewhere in the next 10 to 14 days. So pretty soon. So the email that it pulls, is it like going to be the general email from the outlet or is it going to be like the a whole database of emails from the outlet. Do you know what I'm asking? Because if I want to yeah. specifically target somebody, uh, where so, is it just so Hunter.io tends to have a um, a wide variety of emails. They they don't do generic catch-alls usually. So for example, like if you if you search for SparkToro, you don't see support at SparkToro. You don't see help at SparkToro. You see Casey at SparkToro.com and Rand at SparkToro.com. Um, because it, you know, it finds like the individual people's email addresses and prioritizes those. But what it'll tend to do is show the full, a, a full list. So I plugged in, um, was I looking at like Archonnect Sessions, which is a, a, a popular podcast in the uh, architecture sphere. And it had like four people's names, you know, first name, last initial at Archonnect or whatever it was. And yeah, it's uh, it's nice. The other the other cool thing that I've found is even when it doesn't show you the name of the person that you want to reach, uh, Hunter will show you the format that the that is standard for that organization. 
So if it's, you know, whatever, last name dot first name at domain.com, you, you'll see that too. And then you can be like, oh, okay, well, I want to reach Jacqueline Lambert. So <laughs> boom, I'll just plug in her name with that format. Yeah, that adds a lot of value. I believe that was one of my requests when I was testing it. I think it, it was. <laughs> <laughs> Ask I you. I'll receive. Uh, can I do plug, Britt? Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're talking about niche publications. If you haven't listened to the Carl Anthony Automa blog episode, that's episode seven, season one. Highly recommend listening to that. I'm not telling you, Rand. I'm telling the listeners. I mean, I want to listen to it if you like. It's great. Um, It gives a nice overview on what an editor at a very niche publication wants to see in his inbox. Because unfortunately, the flip side of maybe not having really a lot of really skilled PRs reaching out to them is that he'll get a lot of um, CD link builders uh, sending him very terrible emails and he's tired of it basically and so he gives some really good tips and shares like the common things he sees in his inbox that he wishes would never pop into his inbox again so give that a listen and uh that'll kind of help you as you embark on your journey of reaching out to these smaller publications love it i love that plug (laughs) thanks jackie it's hey i'm always looking out for the listeners i love them (laughs) i love you guys i love you guys anyway that's all I've got. <laughs> all right. Again, unfortunately, uh, I have got to oh. run because I have another uh, meeting coming up. That's yes. cool. Thank you for yeah. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank oh, you so much, my Rand. pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it was, uh, it was really great fun. to chat about all this stuff. And uh, anything I can ever do for you folks, just let me know. Absolutely. Thank you. No, thank you so much. We'll talk to you later. All right. Take care. Bye. 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 Thanks for listening to the very first episode of We Earn Media Season 2. If you want to hear more, please follow along and subscribe to us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Really, there is so much more to come. Of course, we have chats with journalists and reporters in the queue. And this season, Jacqueline and I will also try to record more chats between us in which we share new insights and just talk about the new tricks and tools that we're trying out. Oh, and if you really want to, please give us a review on iTunes. Okay. I'll shut up now. See you next time, and thank you for listening to We Earn Media.